You've heard the expression, face like a lurking spade. Well, if you're from Scotland, you may not have heard that. That just means from one part of our country, you couldn't please some people, right? I was managing, I managed Glenavon for a while, football, and we're winning 4-0 one day. And my wife came into the ground at halftime and somebody said, she, she said to someone or other, what's the score? 4-0. And oh, that's good, isn't it? Too defensive. And that was from one of our supporters at Glenavon. <laughs> Too defensive. But we have a man here from that part of the vineyard today who I believe, uh, can correct me if I'm wrong, but his fellowship began in your own living room, in your own house. I know it progressed to a barn because I spoke in it. And they say in the country, it's a good country smell, it's rotten, right? It was, I'm a townie. It was, but the, it, it had grown from there, and I think to say it has grown exponentially, numerically, would be an understatement. But not only that, it's a ministry that is touching many people across our land and our nation. And, and we're so thrilled and so delighted that uh, that Phil Emerson took up the, the call to come today and minister to us. So, Phil, without any further ado, would you come and lay on our hearts what God has on yours? So, bless you, brother. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's so good um, to be with you this morning. Um, it's so great to see so many men in the room. And uh, we've been praying for this day, and we've been praying not so much that your hearts would be uh, inspired and motivated, while well, we hope that will happen, but that your hearts will be penetrated, be penetrated by the power and by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Um, I thank you, Roy, for your introduction. I'm uh, born and bred in Lurgan. Hi, Paul. And um, uh, I've, I've, I've the youngest of seven. Um, I'm the father of five and the grandfather of nine. So uh, it's, a, it's a good family. And um, it's lovely just to be uh, where God wants you to be. That's the whole key, isn't it? When God moves. And so I have three talks today. And what I felt um, I would do is talk to you a little bit about um, the model, the mission, and the man. Um, and so this morning, what we're going to do um, in this first session, I'm going to talk to you about the model, all right? The model that God would use um, for us, thanks, all right, is really, really important and uh, really important that we grab this because um, there's so much today that grabs your attention. There's so much distorted truth out there. You don't need me to tell you that. There's a billion um, opinions at the touch of a button so you can... Uh, if someone's hurting or searching out there, there's so many wrong answers out there, and so we need to be really careful about how we do this, all right? Um, in the next slide, you'll see a picture. Um, when I was about, uh, my, my dad was in the building industry, and so I grew up in the building industry, and um, he made concrete blocks and owned a quarry, hence the hearing aids and stuff like that, and um, uh, so that was sort of my history growing up in that. When I was about 16, my brother, who's two years older than I, him and I designed a block clamp. That means nothing to some of you in the room, but it was pretty cool for a kid of 16 um, to design something like you see on the left-hand side of the picture. And um, uh, 
it, it, it was one of these things, it was all hydraulic hoses and it was um, uh, clamps and sort of done this sort of stuff. And so what um, the, 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 the organization that made these told us it wouldn't work. We were trying to lift too much and we were trying to cut down our work time. So instead of lifting one stack, we were going to lift three at a time, not two, but three. And they said this wouldn't work. And I said, well, if if my dad paid for it, would you make it? I forgot to tell dad that, by the way. But um, they agreed, and they said, yes, they would, they would make it. So, um, so I remember my brother, my older brother, Alan, Ali's dad, those of you who know Ali, his dad had a Mazda pickup, and I borrowed his Mazda pickup, drove to Bellagoli, lifted this new block clamp. It was my creation. I was so... Um, I was so excited about this. I had invented this. Me and my brother had invented it. It was my invention. And so I was excited about it and put it in the back of the pickup. We drove home and we, we fixed it to the forklift and it did all this kind of stuff and stacked blocks, lifted them here and set them there. My invention. I was a proud boy. When I was 19, I married my uh, wife. I went with her from I was 16 from I left school and got engaged at 17 and married her at 19. Madness, isn't it? And, um, and uh, pretty cool. It was pretty cool. And uh, two months before my 21st birthday, the, the little family on the right-hand side, the one to the left, is some of you will know her as Lisa Kernigan who goes to CFC and leads worship there. Um, she's my eldest daughter. And at 10 past five on a Sunday afternoon on the 2nd of September, 1979, she entered the world. And I, not just 21 years of age, became a dad. And uh, they cut her umbilical cord and she drew breath into her lungs for the first time. And she did this sort of, she's been doing it ever since. Her wee lungs filled and she screeched, filled, her screech filled the air. And I forgot about my invention because all of a sudden I had a creation. <laughs> you see, the other was just something, was head knowledge. This was something that I had participated in. This was part of my DNA. I was part of creating this human being. And as a boy of nearly 21 years of age, I remember going home on that Sunday night and getting down on my knees and saying, oh God, I need help. I do not know how to raise a daughter. I have no idea. And I prayed a simple little prayer and I tell her hubby this all the time. I prayed a simple little prayer and I said, God, I have no idea how to raise a daughter, but I'm going to love her with everything I have. And when she's old enough to walk down the aisle, can you please allow me to put her hand into the hand of a man who will love her like I love her? And I think she found that guy. Pete's a great guy. Here's my question for you this morning. The church, the model, what we've become. Is it an invention or is it a 
creation? Is it something we've just thought up? Is it something mechanically that we do now? We've fallen into the slot of it just being an invention, just something that's cool to do, and we do it because our dad did it, and his dad did it, and their mom did it, and we do it just because everybody else do it, and it just becomes a bit of an invention, really, just head knowledge, but it really never impacts our hearts. It never really unpacks our spirits. It never really touches the place where um, we would want it to touch. And so uh, I believe that, that confidence in the church needs to grow. We live in a day in which confidence, we, Roy has mentioned this across the road, our politics aren't in brilliant shape. We've got Brexit, and our American neighbors aren't having much fun in politics either. The world is going mad. We have a Syrian war. We have more refugees looking asylum than the world seems to cope with. And I'm really glad today that I'm a believer. And I'm really glad today that I'm part of the church. And there's something really powerful about this model because the thing about this better news is God has a model. God has a model, if you will, and it's called the church. And we are the church. We are the church. The church is not a building. You see, if, if, you, if, if the place you meet, dear forbid, burned down or if something happened, it, you would still meet. You'd find somewhere to meet because you are the church. You are the family. There's a few slides coming on, about five or six slides, just about the church. Last Sunday, there were more Christians in church in China than in all mainland Europe. Last Sunday, more Anglicans attended church in the east of Kenya, South Africa, Tanzania, than Anglicans did in all of Britain and America combined. The church is growing at a phenomenal rate. Last Sunday, more Presbyterians. Any good Presbyterians in here? I married a Presbyterian. There you go, but I took her out of it. Um, attended church in Ghana and in Scotland. Oh, forgive me, please. Forgive me. I was only joking. Don't tell your dad that. You're not, Dave. Please. Okay. More SIM cards in the world right now than there is people. 70% of people communicating through wireless technologies. A trillion Facebook views a month. One billion people living in less than a dollar today. And the rich and poor divides increase in human traffic. And 30 million people um, annually in an industry worth 32 billion. All right, on we go. Church is growing. 100 million Chinese Christians, some reports argue as many as 3,000 people a day are being added to the church in China. This church is growing. Gospel has taken root in some of the poorest places on the earth today. Places identified as needing major breakthroughs 30 years ago, Mongolia and Albania, which I have had the pleasure of visiting over the last 13, 14 years, or maybe a little bit more. In 2015, the church in Iran grew by 19.5%. Hundreds of believers in Kabul, Afghanistan, Egypt now has 200 registered prayer watches, and the breakthroughs amongst the Dalits and the press in India, Europe, major stirrings going on throughout uh, Europe with Anglicans, Catholics, grassroots apostolic movements. This is incredible. 25 million people will find their way into faith in 2017. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. All right. In many places, church is doing this stuff. For example, church is the biggest provider for AIDS care. In UK, it runs more schools, youth and toddler groups, debt counseling, and feeds more families than any other voluntary agency. Next time somebody starts to read up the church, you tell them God's got a model to change the world. Yeah, it's called the church. Yeah. 16,350 people groups in the world. 6,645 are in the least reached and unreached categories. 
40.6% of all people, total population, 2.84 billion people. An unreached people group is a, is a group of people that haven't enough within themselves to actually reach themselves. All right, so maybe one or two Christians at the most. 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. 90% of those are in unreached people groups. And of the 7,000 languages in the world, 778 are without any written form of Scripture. So there's work to do. There's a lot of work to do. And so the incredible thing about this church that you and I have become part of, this model that God is reaching out to is very, very powerful. And so in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 19, let me just read it to you. If you've got your Bible or your phone, you can look it up. I'm reading from the NLT, Matthew 16, 13 to 19. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. Then he said, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you, you're Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. And all the powers of hell will not and cannot prevail against it. Very powerful words, isn't it? And I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. It's sort of a crazy story, actually. Um, 2,000 years ago, there was this guy. He was 30. His mom was a teenager when he was born. His dad was a carpenter. He lived in a pretty rural area, very poor, population of maybe a few dozen people. There would have been one well there that would have sustained that population, which Jesus would have went to um, during the day. Probably grew up in a home about the size of the place that you parked your car today, and some of that would have been dedicated to animals. They didn't use all the square footage. They had no indoor plumbing fixtures, no wealth or affluence. He worked for his dad for a while as a carpenter, and then he started preaching and teaching, and he had a group of 12 followers, simple guy, no wife, no kids, no corporate job, and yet in his wake, all right, the largest legacy in the history of the world follows him, all right? Time magazine called him the man of the millennium and the most important man who has ever lived, recognized by Christians and non-Christians alike. More songs have been sung to, more paintings painted of, and more books written about Jesus than anybody else in the history of the world. And here's the thing about him. He didn't use Facebook. He didn't have a Twitter account. He never heard of Periscope. No e- I haven't heard of it either. No email, business card, or office with a nameplate on the door. None of that, all right? In fact, human history is divided around his life. We talk about A.D. A- and B.C., We talk about Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. History literally hinges around this incredible guy. And it is this guy, it is this guy who early on in his ministry made this statement, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Just imagine a 30-year-old, homeless, unemployed guy who's single, growing up in a rural community, saying something like this to 12 guys. You'd have sniggered or laughed. You'd have put it on on Twitter. Just met the craziest guy today. And for all the views that exist around the globe about the church today, my contention 
that every opinion of man is dwarfed by what Jesus thinks about the church. I love this. And here we are, 2,000 years later, we are the church, all right? One little girl became restless as a preacher sermon dragged on and on, and finally she leaned over to her mom and she said, Mommy, if you just give him the money, will he let us go now? After church service on Sunday morning, a young boy suddenly announced to his mother, Mom, I've decided to become a minister when I grow up. Well, said the little boy, I have to go to church on Sunday anyway, and I figure it'd be more fun to stand up there and yell and sit and listen. <laughs> so whatever you think about the church, here we are 2,000 years later, and we are the church that Jesus is building, and billions of people on the planet Earth today worship him as Lord, God, Savior, King, and Christ, the most famous person who ever lived in the history of the world is this man, Jesus Christ. This is the model. His followers take on the name of Christian, little Christ, or Christ ones, all right? Collectively, they comprise what we know is the church. The church is not a building. It's not a club. It's not a committee. It's not man-made. It's not defined in man's terms. It's not an invention. It is a creation. It was created by God, the King of Kings himself. How dare we try to manipulate it and steer it into our little ways of thinking? Here's the big idea. The big idea is this. The church is the sovereign will of God, the purpose of God, and the central fact of his will. It's period. Jesus is the builder, you see. He says, I will build my church. And unless the Lord builds the house, people labor in vain to try to build it. So God is a builder. I love this little theory of building. Growing up as a, a sort of a builder supplier's son, um, I'm always intrigued by buildings when I see them going up. But you see, God's a builder. We we're created in the image of God. In Genesis 1.1, you see, he's creating. We tend to think, well, God created the world in six days. The seventh day he rested, and he's never done anything since. But in Genesis 12, he's actually building again. He's building a nation through this man, Abram. When you come to 1 Peter 2, he's building his church, living stones. When you come to John 14, he's, he's building somewhere for us to exist. Many mansions, this incredible way. So how does he build it? How does he build it? How do we get excited about this church? And if you are part of a church, and I hope you are, because it's the hope of the world, and there's nothing working like the church when it's working right. There is nothing more effective, as I've shown you some of the, the figures today. Jesus builds his church prophetically. I will is a, is a declaration of what will be. While it's not yet visible, not very significant, it will become something very great. The Greek word means to build a house, all right, helping them to be strong and sturdy. So there's something about building, living things grow. There's something about um, if, 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 if your kids weren't growing, there'd be something wrong. Lives must change. Disciples must be made. And we often say for a movement to be a movement, it has to keep moving. And the church is a movement, not something that's static and dead. It has to keep moving and growing and be organic and, and, and rise. So he builds it prophetically. He speaks a declaration into it. I will build my church. Maybe some of us need to let him do that. Yeah. I will build my church. He builds it purposefully. He builds it, he says, I will is a statement of purpose. There's a lot of things Jesus could be doing in the earth, but he announces there's one thing he's going to do. He says, I will build 
my church. I love what John Criswell says. He says, God's main intention in human history is to reunite himself with a world that is estranged by sin. And all that he's doing in space and time is an effort to further that desire. Something very powerful when Jesus builds prophetically and when he builds purposefully. Not only that, he builds personally. He builds the church personally. The church, my church is a statement. I love that. I will build my church, a statement of ownership and of value for God so loved the world that he gave his only true love sacrifices. We know that. And Ephesians tells us that this church was so important to him, he says that he gave himself for her, exhorting husbands to love their wives in such a way. God places the lonely in families, Psalm 68 tells us. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says, but our bodies have many parts, but God has put each part where he wants it to be. God desires us to be in godly relationships within his family. And if you don't have a church family, please, please, please talk to someone today. Find a church family. Find somewhere where you can grow spiritually because he builds prophetically, he builds purposefully, he builds personally, and he builds passionately. The gates of hell will not prevail. God is all over this thing, all right? The reality is that there are two opposing kingdoms around us, and prior to salvation, we belong to the enemy of God, Satan. And, and, and Colossians, Paul, when he writes to the church at Colossae in 121, reminds us, as he says, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. But when you surrender your life to Christ, then something happens. There's a transaction made. You move from the kingdom of darkness, the Bible tells us, into the kingdom of his dear son. There's a shift. And again, Paul, as he writes on in that same chapter of Colossians 1, 13, 14, he says, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, I love this little bit, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. How beautiful is that? And now you're on the opposing side and your enemy is a, a lot more hostile. A World War II bomber pilot said, if you're taking flak, you're probably over the target. So, um, so there's this promise of victory. There's this promise of victory that we're in a battle. We're, this is worth living for. It's worth dying for. I love what, what C.S. Lewis says. It's on the screen. Ever since Christ's ascension, his church army is engaged in a mopping up operation. The church militant, so long as she is the church obedient, will be the church triumphant as well. You see, the church grows. It should grow. Healthy organisms grow. And so Jesus is building his church. He's doing so strategically. He launched this phase 2,000 years ago with about 120 people gathered in an upper room. And he told them to wait there until he sent the Holy Spirit to help them carry on his work. And as the Holy Spirit poured into this, 3,000 men got saved and baptized in one day. Saved and baptized. Not incredible. In one day, the church growing powerful because you see something happens as people begin to move, as they begin to love God passionately. Uh, the believers devoted themselves. As they honored the scriptures, they began to, to, to give themselves to the apostles' teaching. They began to live spirit-filled lives 
wondering, uh, praising God and worshiping him, seeing signs and wonders in the church. Things were powerful. There was a consistent part of their lives. They, they began to connect with purpose. They, they, all the believers met together one place, shared everything they had. They became a church community that integrated into each other's lives with a sense of purpose. They were part of something larger than themselves. It was called the church, and you and I are that church. This is so powerful. 1 Peter 2 says, once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you've received God's mercy. Growing as disciples, there was a, they devoted themselves to this teaching, and, and to be a disciple is to be a, a learned follower, and those who made this growing company were Christ's followers, allowing their lives to be shaped by the Word and by the power and anointing and teaching of the Holy Spirit, and then they began to reach people everywhere. These are all signs of a healthy church reaching people everywhere. They were praising God. They were enjoying goodwill of all the people. And each day, this is what it says in 247 of Acts, the Lord added each day to their fellowship those who were being saved. Something powerful about this, isn't it? And then what happened, they were on a mission. It wasn't just about themselves. They began to build churches strategically. They began to, to make sure that that, that that little estate got to hear it. And they began to make sure that this side of the town got to hear it, and it wasn't just this side. They made sure that the, the Catholic people got to hear it as well as the Protestant people got to hear it. They made sure the Muslim people got to hear it as well as the Hindu people got to hear it. They began to build these churches strategically all over the place. This is so powerful, but you will receive power, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. You'll be my mouthpieces. You'll be able to gossip this gospel wherever you go. I love what Damasio says on the slide again, the church that Jesus had in mind gathers together, but also dissembles itself and goes into the cracks and crevices of society in order to share Christ with the world. It's not just about us four and no more. It's not just about our little holy huddle. Not just about, oh, I don't know, people would come, they would sit in our seats. That'd be awful, wouldn't it? I, uh, I chair the ministers fraternal locally in our town. And I had a situation with the church. We, we, we actually hire rooms to, we hire a lot of room. We do a lot of room hire. We say we, we can't afford to do the ministry that God has called us to do. So we make all ways that we can, can make money to do that. And so we do a lot of room hire. And we hire rooms to both Weight Watchers and Slimming World on different days. You say, I don't go together. But um, you, uh, <laughs> I said that before somebody else would. Um, and uh, the, one of the Slimming World, the girl who runs Slimming World said to me, we love somewhere in the outskirts of town. Do you think, is there any other churches involved? So I said to the minister, I said, look, they're, they're, I, I knew this minister personally, and I knew they'd be really praying that God would be moving and bring people into their church. And I said, this is a great opportunity. It brings people in during the day. And people come in during the day. It makes it more easy for them to come on a Sunday and gives your church. And he thought, brilliant idea, Phil. Send them along. So he never thought of sending his elders or anything. He just he brought them in. They did the first class. There was an absolute scandal in the church. Elders went into an uproar. The people in the congregation. One lady said to me, they're bringing sinners into our church. 
one of the elders said, one of the elders said, sure there could be homosexuals or anything coming in and sitting in our seats. I know it's funny, but it's desperately sad, isn't it? It's desperately sad that it's become an invention instead of the creative mechanism that God created it to be. And the, the fact is that we are this church. We are simply an extension of this first church in Acts. And, and over four decades of being involved in church history tells me that the gospel still works and lives are still being changed from 120 people in an upstairs room in Jerusalem, two billion people now worldwide, the church has grown. Anybody say amen to that? But I asked you this question as men. Could we reach the millions if there wasn't someone who first provided the room for the 120? Church begins as Christ impacts each one of our lives and then adds us to something larger than ourselves. And this is the powerful thing. And while you might know the right Bible answer to the question, at times we struggle to know whether the church is an invention or a creation. We wonder if it's personal or professional. We wonder and question at times, are we a number or are we a name? And while at times people get it wrong, and even at times people get wounded, we are still a church and it's still a model that God has designed to use. Paul, one of the early builders and leaders of the church, wrote to one particular church, the church at Rome. And I have this in a slide. Don't let it freak you out. But um, I'm not going to read it, so I just wanted to put it all on. Because without reading it, in the last chapter of Romans, Paul highlighted 28 unknown. I wish it had been Bob or Bill or Freda or something, because I'm not going to try and announce some of them or pronounce some of them. But Paul, Paul saw it fit in the Holy Writ of Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to mention 28 unknowns. We read of them, many of them we don't read anywhere else in the Scripture, but Paul mentions them, and, and he gives them a name, because here, here's why he gives these 28 people a name. He gives them a name because you are important. Your name is important to God. Jesus chose 12 to be his disciples, and there wasn't one of them that would impress us. Most of them were uneducated workmen. Several were rough fishermen who spent their times out in the open water catching fish or on the shore repairing their boats and cleaning their nets. One was a tax collector, and everybody hated tax collectors. I love um, what uh, Beverly Steele Everett, way back in the Lookout magazine, back in 1983, wrote this. She made a, an observation that startled everybody. She said, God's not perfect. Got your attention, didn't it? She says, God is tone deaf. He's so tone deaf, he thinks the off-key singing of Jesus Loves Me by a five-year-old is as beautiful as a solo from the Messiah by a trained soprano. She says, obviously God can't count because if he could count, he would know better than to accept the 20 pence from a preschooler with the same joy he accepts a thousand pounds donation from a rich person. And she said, God can't concentrate. He listens to millions of prayers all at the same time instead of concentrating on those from famous preachers and important leaders. And she says, obviously God is poor eyesight because he doesn't see us as we are, but keeps seeing us for what we could be. What was she saying? 
She was saying that the high and mighty people of the world are not the people that impress God. Instead, he is impressed by those who are active members of our church, who have honored him by giving their lives and have joined with the millions of people throughout their lives to build his church. You see, you are important. And your part is essential. Your part is essential. What you have to offer is necessary. Priscilla and Aquila risked their lives for me, Paul says here in 16 of Romans. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them. Mary worked very hard for you. Tripina and Triposa, these women work hard in the Lord. Persis, another woman who's worked very hard in the Lord. Apelles was tested and approved in Christ. He suffered for his faith. And a few of these people had even church services in their home. These are workers. You are the nuts and bolts of the congregation, the rewriters of the story. And so I, I asked you, what has the church become to you? Is it a creation? Or has it just become an invention? Have you become cold and callous to the systems? Have you become cold and callous to the strategies and structures and the mechanisms? In our church, we, uh, we felt many years ago that God had called us to the lost and the broken. And we started in 96 in our home, just a few of us, wife and four kids, two teenage girls. I preached at a suit and tie on. I'm actually embarrassed to tell you, but I preached to my four kids and my wife. Got a little podium. And, um, but I was a coal man. I was working in a broken city in Craig Evan. And uh, I began to see people saved on the coal run, and I just didn't know where to bring them. I, I had no idea what to do with them. And I found that catching the fish was one thing, cleaning it out was another thing. And... Um, and so I, I didn't know what to do. I couldn't bring them to church because the church wouldn't have accepted them. They didn't dress right. They didn't smell right. And they certainly didn't talk right. And some of their habits wouldn't have been acceptable. And so my wife always said she was the accelerator. She died in 2006. But um, I always said she was the accelerator and I was the brake. And she said to me one day, she said, Phil, why don't you just bring them home? Why don't you just bring them home? And I said, well, that would be pretty freaky, wouldn't it? And so when we were breaking bread, as a brethren boy, you break bread, don't you? So when we were doing communion, some of our new converts would go out, because they didn't understand communion, they would go out and roll a joint and smoke a joint outside our front door while we were breaking bread inside. And my head was racked. I was trying to f figure this out. I was trying to, I remember we started in, in the, on the 8th of September, 96, I remember Christmas time, falling on my knees at the side of my bed one night with my wife and said, God, would you please just send us some ordinary people? <laughs> hmm. 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 Do you know what I found after doing this for over 20 years? I found they were the ordinary people. Yeah. I found they were just the ones that told the truth. And we could see the stuff because they were vulnerable and they didn't hide it and there's something that happens when we begin to stir and realize 
to be the church. Many of those are seasoned believers now. After 20 years, some took a lot of work rewriting this story because who you are and where you are going are intricately intertwined into God's greater plan of extending the church. And so I'm saying to you as men today, your responsibility isn't just to sit in church. Your responsibility is to grow the church. Your responsibility isn't just to go and all about me. They did a survey in America recently uh, to ask about churches, and they said that the top three things that people looked for in churches was, number one, are the toilets clean? Number two, is there anything here for my kids? And number three, will my wife get on with them here? Sad, isn't it? Nothing about doctrine. Nothing about, will the Holy Spirit enter my family and rack them for him? Nothing about that. Why? Because the church has become an invention. And we need to get back to the idea of it being a creation. Understanding that this is God's mandate and God's idea to change the world. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we are the church. And the most incredible thing about this church, it will rewrite the story of every city, of every street, and every estate that we let it loose in. May we not contain it. May we not speak evil of it. May we not destroy it with our idle gossip. But may we empower it in Jesus' mighty name.